0: Jesus did not come merely to entertain people or to show off His uh, power. He wasn't going around setting up uh, conferences and a speaking tour. didn't have uh, agents going out ahead of time and setting up the stage and taking care of all the rooms uh, in advance of His arrival. But instead, as He went from town to town... Uh, he was layer by layer and bit by bit revealing who he is. He was demonstrating all that he truly is as God and Savior and King. Uh, he was not like uh, Peter Parker in Spider-Man, trying to conceal his identity. You remember remember you know, this little kid trying to make sure that no one finds out he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? He's not like him trying to conceal his identity, nor is he like Muhammad Ali declaring to the world that he's the greatest, even though he really is. Different character, different motivation, different way. From scene to scene in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus is teaching and healing, casting out demons, demons, Demonstrating his power over the things that he has made. Created elements like bread and fish. Wind and waves. He from scene to scene is willing to demonstrate mercy and kindness to those that are needy and desirous. And also willing to rebuke Pharisees that would undermine Jesus' association with a sinner, uh, with uh, a society filled with sinners. Because of the way that Jesus went about unveiling who he is, there were a mixed uh, responses about who Jesus is. Mixed responses to his lordship, to his messiahship, to his saviorhood. Mixed responses. But soon enough, based upon the plan of God, Jesus would, in fact, unveil who he really is. He would unveil his mission. He would unveil his nature. Here, we're in the midst of the early stages of Jesus' earthly ministry in the Gospel of John and his recounting of it. We want to pick up in verse 23 of John chapter 2. So John chapter 2 I'm going to pick it up in verse 23, read to the end of the chapter, all three verses for us this morning. Listen to what God's Word says. Now when Jesus, uh, excuse me, now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we have a lot, actually, to unpack in these three verses. But mainly, we want to see more and more about who our Savior is. That is the goal of the Gospel of John, to reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to reveal that He is a Savior, that we might believe and have life in His name. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we see it in that light. What, what is this passage contributing to us and to those original uh, readers? What is it contributing to us in order to believe who Jesus is? So the first element of our discussion this morning in this passage is Genuine, saving faith leads us to see the magnitude of Jesus Christ. Genuine, saving faith leads us to see the magnitude of Jesus Christ. Now, notice again in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Many. This is a recurring theme In the Gospels, this concept of many, 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 many. As Jesus began his ministry, the crowds kept growing and growing and growing. Jesus was often pressed by the crowd, oftentimes having to sneak away to get to have some alone time. But he was pressed by the crowd as as his teaching gatherings and his healing ministry and his demonstration of his messiahship uh, went on the the crowds were full to overflowing and you can think about in Mark chapter one there was this uh, sequence of events one evening where Jesus had performed one miracle after another, and then he's at Peter's home and he heals. Peter's mother-in-law and the passage tells us that the whole city was at the door of Peter's house. The whole city was at the door of Peter's house and Jesus healed many and cast out demons and then he spent the evening in Mark chapter 1 he spent the evening in prayer. And the next morning the crowds were looking for him and his disciples we're looking for Him. And when His disciples finally found Jesus, they said this to Him. This will be on the screen to my left and right. Every, nope, one, one back. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Why, why were they looking for Him? They're seeing something un, uh, amazing unfolding. No one else is casting out demons. No one else is healing people of diseases. No one else can do this. Everyone is looking for you. The crowds are immense. They're growing. Jesus' popularity is growing. But listen to what his response to them was in verse 38. It says, And he said to them, this to be on the screens, He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. That's why I came out. I was sent forth with this in mind, to go from town to town to town to unveil the truth of who I am and what I am providing, what I am offering in myself. So Jesus has had this experience from early on in ministry that the crowds keep gathering. They see something amazing taking place in Jesus. Here in John chapter 2, it's very much like this. Except John provides us with such little data. <laughs> it says Jesus was in Jerusalem. Last week when Pastor Jeff was teaching, uh, he, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he uh, dealt with the temple scene and, and uh, Jesus speaking about himself as that temple, uh, laying his life down, the, the, both the Passover sacrifice and the temple itself. An amazing reality. Um, The week before that, we were in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus turning the water into wine in Cana. That's not in Jerusalem. So what's being said here in verse 23, is when Jesus was in Jerusalem, it's not taking into account what took place in Cana. Because remember, when Jesus turned that water into wine, there were only a few people that knew about it. His disciples believed. The servants had some inkling that something strange was happening, but it was not an unveiling to many. But what took place in Jerusalem that John only records just a little snippet of, Jesus was performing many miracles. And many, it says, believed in His name. Why and what were they believing is the question. Look again at verse 23. He was in Jerusalem at the... Passover feast. Many believed in his name. Will you read the end of verse 23 with me? When they saw the signs that he was doing. When they saw the signs he was doing. So multiple signs, you see that? Plural. They saw the signs that he was doing. Now, this isn't apparent in our English Bible, but they're trying to make it. This is an imperfect tense. It's something that took place in the past that had a, a duration of time that was going on. So he was doing one sign after another. These multiple signs were going on. The whole time he was in Jerusalem, he was performing these signs because that's who he is. John only uh, uh, records to us, uh, for us in this chapter, the water to wine, but it wasn't widely known. But Jesus is unveiling something this whole time. And John, in his gospel, only just captures it with. They saw the signs that he was doing. It reminds me of, of the creation account with, and he made the stars also. It's like this vast array of stars all around the universe, trillions of stars summarized with this little, he made the stars also. Well, here we have a similar situation. Jesus is performing sign after sign after sign in everything he is, in everything he does, scene after scene, and John just says, he was doing many signs. As you read through the Gospels, you can see the writers giving us snippets of Jesus' awesome work. I'll I'll, uh, recount it by uh, on the screen to my left and right, Matthew chapter 12, says this, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed Him. Can you read the end of that? I've got it underlined. And He healed them. How many? How many were following Him? Many. Many. And He healed them all. This is an incredible statement. Just summarize really quickly. These, this crowd is following Him, and anyone that had a problem, Jesus healed them. Like if you and I did something like that we'd be taking detailed notes. I want you to see all the things that I accomplished, all the things that I did. The world themselves could not contain all the works, all the signs, all the wonders, all the kindnesses, all the mercies, all the graces, all the things that Jesus spoke and said and did because he's just he's he's not capturable by words on a page. Thankfully, we can understand much because God has captured it on words, in words, on a page. But even that requires the Spirit to open our eyes to see just how amazing this Jesus is. All right, so we've got all this going on, captured very Uh, succinctly by the, the Apostle John. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. These signs that Jesus was doing were to point to a greater reality of who Jesus really is. Too often, too often, we get stuck focusing on the provision more than the provider. And I think that's what we see here in verse 23. And I think that's what we see sometimes in our own perspectives. Oh, God did this for me. God did that for me. Jesus did this for me. Jesus did that for me. And these are true things. But we can really substitute the thing obtained, the experience received, the benefit that we have Uh, received over against the person providing that benefit. This can be a bad problem or it can be a devastating problem. If it is an occasional matter like we all experience where we prefer the gift to the giver, it leads to bad results, right? Because we're missing the greater gift of the person. However, when our focus, if a person's focus is always and only on that which is provided rather than the provider, there is a devastating result of unbelief. And I think that we see a little bit of that implied here in this text. Jesus is in Jerusalem. The crowds are gathering, they're, they're following him, they're intrigued, they see the things he's doing, and they're like, wow, I want him to do that for me. Fix my broken leg, fix my unseeing eye, fix my unstable or inept tongue, fix my uh, overflowing well of blood. Fix my problem. Fix my problem. I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. This is a recurring issue that comes up in the Gospels. Take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 6. This passage lets us know that Jesus is not unaware of people's motivations in coming to him. In John, chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, plus, plus, plus. Jesus walks on water, and then at the, toward the middle of the chapter, some people come to him, and in verse 26 is where we pick up our reading of John chapter 6. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom he has sent. Jesus' work was designed to produce awe in who he is and more more than in what he has accomplished. Um, when When he performs these miracles, these signs and wonders, it's awesome, right? It captures the attention. It draws attention to him. When when that is the end result, wow, look at that thing. Isn't that amazing? That thing that happened. We missed the point. Jesus says, you've come because you want your bellies filled. I've come to show you what I have to offer you that's going to endure. You want to figure out what you can do so you can, of your own resources, attain eternal life. But I want to tell you about some food that's going to last for you, that eternal life, that I'm willing to give to you. You want to work the work of God? Believe in me. I've already done it. I am doing that work. He's replacing the gift they think they need for the gift that they really need, which is Him, Himself. The concept that he's conveying here in John 6 as well as John chapter 2, I think is a similar concept to what God charges us with in Romans chapter 1. This concept that people worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator because they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie they they want something else. So, okay, let's think about this. We're, we want to make sure you're following me. We're looking at John chapter 2. We're coming to the end of John chapter 2. Jesus has these, these group of people following after him. They believe because they see some tricks. They, they believe because they see some power, some kind of thing happening. And Jesus says, I'm not going to entrust myself unto them because they're just looking for the power rather than for me. So the question that I think that really needs to be um, wrestled through is what does real saving faith look like? Is it what is he going to do next? What cool little thing is he going to do next? Or does it look like something else? So let's take a look at a a couple of passages I think that will help us to understand what God does to To elicit or bring forth saving faith from us. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3. What would you say saving faith is like? In Philippians chapter 3, this is one of Paul's numerous testimonies of salvation. In this section, he's teaching something as he utilizes uh, his own personal testimony His testimony is recorded from verses 4 through 11. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 3 where he introduces it. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Is he talking about the little puppy dogs? The coyotes? What What does he mean? Look out for those that are going to twist the truth. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are people that are trying to to, uh, utilize the law to get something from God. Look out for those that twist the purpose of God, is essentially what they say. So false teachers. Verse 3. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So if you look at just verse 3, just think for a moment. What is Paul trying to accomplish with verse 3? He says, we, so not just himself, we, and the church of Philippi, we are the true circumcision, not the ones that are mutilating ourselves so that God will accept us. We're the true believers And there are three characteristics of true believers. They worship God by the Spirit. They rejoice in Christ Jesus. And they have no confidence in the flesh. Saving faith looks like that. Like God captures our attention to recognize that He is the one that's worthy of worship. So He it's not just what He gives, it's Himself. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. We recognize that our access to the Father is through Christ. We rejoice in Him because that's where our righteousness comes from. He'll talk about that in verses 8-11 through 11 of this passage. Our righteousness comes through the work of Jesus Christ and trusting Him. So we rejoice in Christ Jesus. And then the warning in verse 3 is don't have any confidence in you producing any of this. You can't do that. So real saving faith takes our eyes off of us and upward looking to Christ, looking to God. Does that make sense? Is that pretty clear? That's a, that's a, a valuable concept for you and for me and for a, a watching world. It's so easy to get caught up in what must I do so I'll be in good position so that God will accept me. But God is telling us, I've done everything necessary. Come receive from me. And what it looks like to receive from Him is to look up and say, God, You're amazing. You have given me everything. You're worthy of worship. Not the gift. You. And it comes through Christ. Well, let's look a little further at some additional evidences Of how saving faith is born. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. It's an amazing passage here. The last portion of chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians, Paul is praying, and he's praying that our eyes would be opened, that the Ephesian believers' eyes would be opened to the magnitude of God's amazing love. Verse 14 And height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. We read it that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he goes on into those glorious passages, but just stop right there. He said, I want you to know this this knowledge that you can't obtain yourself, it has an, an an unending duration. It lasts forever. It has an uh, unending scope or width. It encapsulates people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's so deep that the love itself in the form of Christ has come down to earth. And it's so glorious that it will take you and lift you up to glory. Understanding the love of God in Christ is a, an un, a wonderful evidence of God's working out of faith in His people. God's abundant love changes us. or in Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, it compels us or constrains us. Saving faith moves beyond believing some event took place, or some truth proclaimed. Saving faith moves beyond believing some event took place or some truth that is proclaimed. Saving faith opens our eyes to see who God is, who our Savior is, and what He's like, what He has accomplished, what He provides he opens our eyes to understand His unending commitment and love for us. As God unveils our eyes to see His faithfulness to us, His love for us that can't be taken away, we echo the words of Peter when he says, where else are we going to go? You, you have the words of eternal life. God is drawing us to Himself. To the Savior. Not to some things. Saving faith, this is important. Don't lose focus here. Saving faith doesn't look inward to determine a particular quantity of faith, but it looks upward at its object. The Lord Jesus is unfailing in his ability to save. Look to him. Believe him. I'll say it a little different way. Don't ask, do I have enough faith? Ask this instead, is he enough? Is he capable of saving me? Is he enough? Is his sacrifice enough? Is God's offer of salvation sufficient to save me? That is where saving faith is proved out. Not as you look inward, but as you look upward. The people saw event after event and they're like, wow! That's amazing! But eventually, Jesus was going to be off the scene. And that is unsustainable. Believe Him! And then you'll see Him hanging on a a tree. Believe Him and you'll hear the words that He spoke as He hung on that tree. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And it is finished. And Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. When You believe Him, all of those statements... Foster and nurture and nourish your faith, and you say, Yes, God, you are enough. You have done enough. I believe. And it's not because you looked this way, but because you looked that way. He is good. Head back, please, with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Believe him for more than his wondrous works, believe him for who he is. We'll talk more about this in our discussion groups tonight. I hope that you have the opportunity to participate with us. We're moving beyond that first statement, which is genuine faith leads us to see the majesty or magnitude of who Jesus Christ is. Now we move to a second portion of our discussion this morning, which is Jesus' knowledge of the heart of man affirms his divine nature. John 2, look at verses 24 and 25. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. All right, so Jesus sees all these people. They're all following. Oh, I believe, I believe. I believe in these things you're doing. I believe on you. Jesus didn't, this passage says, didn't believe on them. He uses the same exact word, testuo in the Greek. They believed in his name. He didn't believe in them. What does that mean? He didn't entrust himself to them because he recognized that their faith was only based on the work itself. They were only clinging on to the wonder show. It's interesting how verse 25 words it. Jesus didn't need anyone to bear witness about man. He didn't need a letter of commendation. A letter of reference? You ever have to write one of those? Hey, uh, you know, you've known me for 20 years. Can you please write this letter? Because I'm going to go for this job. Or I'm going to go and apply for this permit. And I need your help. Will you write this letter of reference for me so that they'll know who I am? Jesus says, I don't need, or John says, Jesus didn't need a letter of reference from from anyone to figure out what's really going on inside of people. He knows. He knows it all. If you think about the numerous times that Jesus is performing his ministry, whether he's teaching or healing, and people are having either an inner dialogue or a dialogue way out in the fringe that there's no way that Jesus would be able to hear and he knew exactly what was going on. I want, I want to look at a couple of examples of it just because it's, like, I just find it wonderful uh, how, how, how Jesus does this. So let's take a look, please, at Luke chapter 5 for a moment. It's a somewhat familiar setting for us. Luke chapter 5 in the middle of this account that we're about to read. It's a crowded location. So people have uh, a man on a stretcher, their buddy on a stretcher, and they want him to be healed, so they're bringing him to Jesus, but the place is so slam and packed that they can't get to him. So they thought, ha, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Oh, I probably shouldn't say that for you cat lovers. Um, There's another way we can approach this, I'll say it really uh, generically. So they climb up on the roof with this guy. Have you carried someone on a stretcher and got them on a roof? That's pretty intense. And then they, they start unpacking it. And, and one of the gospel readings is they were unthatching the thatched roof. They, they un, unthatch this and then they send the guy down in a basket. They were pretty intent upon this. But... The point that I want you to to catch as we're about to read this accounting is this place is slamming packed with people. Okay, so just keep that in your mind. Take a look please now at verses 17 and following of Luke chapter 5. On one of those days he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. You see the the pictures There's a lot of people and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, led him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst uh, uh, before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And he used those words. Specifically, because he knew what he was about to elicit from the Pharisees and teachers. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home. What was he doing? Glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Oh my goodness, this is cool. But in the middle of this conversation, Jesus knew the thoughts of these Pharisees and teachers. What does that say about him? He knows the thoughts of us all. Take a look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus declares himself to be the authority, he, to have the authority to forgive sin, and he's still doing that today. He knows what's in the heart of man, even when they're in the smatterings in the background. Oh, he'll never know. He hears and knows it all. We have another example here in John chapter 4. Jesus is talking with the woman of Samaria at the well. We'll pick it up in verse 16. Jesus said to her, "'Go, call your husband and come here.'" Stop right there. Have you read this before? You know what's about to happen. Jesus also knew what was about to happen. "'Call your husband.'" The woman answered him, "'I have no husband.'" Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Look down a little further at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. He knew it all. Every last guilty, shameful, whitewashed sin. Every single one. And he was there to provide her with water springing up unto everlasting life. See, he knows it all. And this unveiling of who he is in the Gospel of John and all through the, the gospels is so that you and I will know who he is, and he knows in Luke. 1615 says God knows our hearts. That is a reference to, to God in general. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He knows our hearts. When we read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, a repeated refrain in Jesus' letters to the churches. Remember he says, I know your works. I know all of them. I know every single one of them. Some, there were some good works that he commended and then there were some other works. He knows them all. Fully known. Good and bad. Look at chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. We're in John 4 already. Take a look at John chapter 5 for a moment. Start reading in verse 36. Well, I'll read, you follow along, please. John 5:36 But the testimony that I have given is greater than that of John speaking of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So my works are testifying. John the Baptist is testifying in verse thirty-seven, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard. Excuse me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one. Whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that, what do they do? Bear witness about Me. So the, the John the Baptist is bearing witness and his works are bearing witness and the Father is bearing witness and the Scriptures are bearing witness. Yet, verse 40, you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. All of these testimonies Look at verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You do not have the love of God within you. Here here they come. There they are. He had healed a man on the Sabbath day. The guy at 38 years couldn't walk. He heals them and they're worried about the Sabbath. My father works. I work. What are, you, what are you thinking? What's wrong with you people? God has been bearing witness. All these things are bearing witness. So you'd know me. Come to me and you also can have something. I have something for you like I had for him. It, it will last you forever. Come to me for life. But you refuse to come to me. I know something about you. The reason you're questioning like this, the way you are, the reason your line of reasoning is the way it is, is you don't value, you don't love, God's love has not invaded your space. You don't know what the love of God is. But Jesus knew this about them. Jesus knows everything. Ready for this? Jesus knows everything about you. We read Psalm 139 for our scripture reading this morning. It attests that God knows your words. Before they hit your tongue, before they come out, of your mouth. And this could be amazingly scary, that knowledge of that knowledge. You're welcome. (laughs) However, when we know Him and what He is like, this fear, this being scared of Him knowing what's in my mind, turns from fear to awe And joy, which is how that first stanza in Psalm 139 ends. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know everything that I think before I think it. This blows my mind. And as Brother David pointed out, his right hand is on us. There's something of an affectionate, loving, protective hand that he has. So I want you to think about this. Believer, believer, Jesus knows you fully and he loves you completely. Hallelujah. Amen. Every last dirty secret. The ones you don't want your loved ones to know about. You'd be too ashamed to tell your parents. You'd be too ashamed if your children knew some of the things that you've done or thought or said. You'd be too ashamed to tell your pastor or some priest somewhere, God knows them all. And He still loves us. There's something amazing about this God that we worship. He's unlike any one that you could ever conceive for yourself. He's amazingly merciful and kind and compassionate and gracious toward us. We'll talk more about this tonight. You know, to be loved is great. Isn't it? Don't you love being loved by somebody? But to be fully known and loved is even better. We don't know everything about one another. And we love each other. It's good. It's a good thing. But God knows us intimately to the depths, not just of our actions, but to our intentions. And he loves us. This blows our minds. To know this makes us say, Lord, you truly are good. And there is nobody like you. This leads us to our last portion of our conversation, and it will just be very brief, honestly, but don't, please don't lose focus because this next portion is vitally important to our fully understanding the passage. So this third portion is this, to whom does Jesus entrust himself? To whom does Jesus entrust himself? We already read the passage. We're not going to read it again. You can read it again later. To whom does Jesus entrust himself? So we can think of it in this, these terms. Think of it in terms of Jesus' disciples. Matthew, a tax collector. He turned his back on his whole people, including like relatives, to serve the Roman government with his tax collections. And Jesus entrusted himself to him. James and John, Peter and Andrew, fishermen, commoners, rough and tumble. Remember, Jesus called James and John sons of thunder. (laughs) I, I really wish I could see some of those conversations. And then Simon, a zealot. Don't whitewash that. The zealots trained... To kill people, and they were known to have their daggers in in their uh, cloaks, and they'd go into mobs of people and use their daggers, leave the wreckage behind, and not be known. So this tells you that truck drivers can be entrusted, landscapers can be entrusted. School teachers can be entrusted. Jesus will entrust himself to all these kinds of people. Homemakers can be entrusted. So that's just if you think about it on the terms of the disciples. But let's think about it just for a moment in the sequence of the Gospel of John. Because here we are in chapter 2, and it says Jesus, didn't, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. He didn't need anyone to tell us what was in man because he knew all of these things. When you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, many of our translations read like now, but the the Greek term is day, but. But there was a man of the Pharisees. His name is Nicodemus. As you come from Jesus not entrusting himself to these people that were just there for his hocus-pocus, in their minds, he did entrust himself to a Pharisee. So I want to tell you this, we all come from different backgrounds, we all have different struggles, but I want to tell you this, there is hope for Pharisees. You want to please God with all your actions, you want to do everything just right, there's hope for you. Come to Jesus on his terms. There's hope for you. This is what Nicodemus had to do. At the first part of chapter 4, we talked about her a little bit for, for this morning, right? We've got this Samaritan woman who had five husbands, divorced from them, and then she's living with another one. So you want to say what I have to say? For us, there is hope for divorced fornicators. There's hope for divorced fornicators. You come to the end of chapter 4, and Jesus ministers to an official. An official. You'll see that this is essentially a politician. Ah, you know what? There's hope for a politician. There's hope for politicians. There's hope for all of these. Gardeners, gas station attendants, lawyers, accountants, Even you, Dave. There's hope for you. (laughs) Accountants, IRS agents. List all of the different categories of people. You know what we see? There's hope. There's hope for us. What about you? What are you like? Is there hope for you? Is there hope for you? Would Jesus entrust himself To someone like you? Are you too far gone? Have you crossed too many lines? What is he calling for you and for me to do? What must I do to work the works of God? I want to find for myself provision. You know what? This is the work of God. Believe in Christ. Is there hope for you? Yes. Yes. Resoundingly, yes, there's hope for you. Come to Him. Believe Him. Call out to Him. Everything that Jesus did was leading toward His ultimate purpose of providing redemption for all who would come to Him. He lived for you. He died for you. And He was raised that you might be declared righteous. This is the good news of Christ. So we come to the end of chapter 2 and Jesus says, I know you fully. And to be known by Him and to come to Him is to be fully known and to be fully loved. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, You are undoubtedly working in each of us and Your own specific, unique way. And I pray, Father, as You do that work within us, I pray that we would see You. And we would see Your Son. And we would trust You. We would trust Your worth to know us fully. And that we would believe You and believe Your Son whom You've given to us as a treasure and a gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.